You know those moments you'll never forget? Well, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a cool November evening. I'm surrounded by dim candlelight. My heart is pounding out of my chest. I'm trying to catch my breath. And all of this is happening as I'm down on one knee. I'm holding up a little velvet box. I'm looking at the woman I love, Rachel, and I'm about to ask her a question. The most important question I've ever asked another human being. And finally, I utter it. And then I wait for her response. Which makes me think of a question. Does it matter how we respond to love? Does it matter how you respond to the loving advances of another? Does it matter how we respond to love? For the past couple months, Kevin, our senior pastor, has taken us through a series that's simply titled, The Life of Christ. But let me say this. There is no better topic than Jesus. Amen? Because in Jesus, we find life. In his teaching, we are introduced to the wisdom of God. In his miracles, we are struck by the power of God. In his actions, we see the love, the humility, the service, the heart of God. There's no better topic than Jesus. So let me tell you what I want to do this morning. What I hope to accomplish is this. I want to take everything that Kevin is doing week in and week out and elevate the importance of it. Because as he brings us the gospel message about what Jesus has done, I know it's so easy for us to forget. I know that because I forget. I forget what Jesus did. I forget what Jesus said. Not that we forget the stories. We, we know the stories. And not that we forget his words. Many of us could quote tons and tons of things that Jesus has said. But what we're so prone to forget is all of the meaning, all of the depth, all of the purpose behind what Jesus did. You see, everything in the gospel, everything in the story of Christ, everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said, it points to the utter importance of the good news. The good news that God came down. He lived among us. He became a man. He did life with us on this earth. And because we cannot save ourselves, because we are lost in sin, he chose to suffer and die on a cross for us. But he didn't stay dead. And that's the good news. And I am so thankful that he did that because he loves us. That he came down and he suffered that pain and death for us because he loves us. And I am so thankful that he loves us. Which makes me think of a question. Does it matter how we respond to love? Let me pray. We'll continue. Father God, Lord, I thank you 
for moments like this where we can get into your word, where we can respond to you in worship through song, where we can be your church this morning. And Lord, I pray for humility on my part that I would simply be a voice for your truth. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that that we would have open hearts to hear you. And Lord, this morning, that as your spirit moves, we would be taught, we would be instructed, and we would experience who you are. And God, that we would come to know how you desire for us to respond to you. Amen. We're going to set up camp in Matthew chapter 7. If you want to turn to it, it will be on the screen, but it would be great if you had your Bible. And where we'll actually be is the end of Matthew chapter 7. And what we find there is the conclusion to Jesus' sermon on the mount. Now, it's a fantastic conclusion to a great sermon. And it's a sermon in which Jesus, he takes the spiritual status quo of that day, and he completely flips it on its head. With his words, he offends the religious people. And with those same words, he gives hope to the sinner, to the lost. And for us today, what we can see that he does with his words is he shows us how people respond to him. He shows us how people, in a number of different ways, choose to respond to the person of Jesus. So let's look at this. We'll pick it up in verse 13 of chapter 7. These are the words of Jesus. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew. They beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, The crowds, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, what Jesus is doing here is he's painting 
a portrait, a very detailed portrait. And this type of communication was very common in the first century. So the Jewish people who were there listening to him, they were used to this type of communication. But we tend to miss it. We see a lot of imagery and word pictures, and we don't exactly understand what he's doing. Because we're wired to be information driven. I mean, look at Google, these search engines. I just type something in. Sometimes you don't even have to click on the website to find the information you got. You're in, you're out, give it to me quick, and I'm done. And we tend to miss what Jesus is really saying through this painting, through this portrait that he's giving us. And as he brings this message, we often hear them all as separate issues. As as he talks about two roads, we see that, we put brackets around it, and we shelve it. We hear him talk about wolves in sheep's clothing. We put brackets around that, we put it on its own shelf. We hear him talk about Christians who aren't really Christians. We, We say that stands by itself. We hear him talk about foundations. We say, you know what, that's its own thing. We hear them as separate, not cohesive, and we tend to miss the bigger picture. Do this for me. Make a telescope out of your hand. You've done this before. It's just been like maybe 30, 40 years since you've done it. It's been a long time. Make a telescope with one of your hands, just so you can see through your hand. Just a little bit. Go ahead and do that. Go ahead and do that. Close one eye and then look through that telescope at me. Don't don't be embarrassed. You can do this. It's good. And go ahead and look up at me and keep it right there. What, what do you see? If you're focused on me, then you see me because that's what you're gazing at right now. But what do you miss? What you miss is everything around you. What you miss is the bigger picture. You see, we tend to look at Jesus like this. We tend to look at the Bible like this. We tend to look at all that Jesus is and the grand story of Scripture like this. And we miss the bigger picture. And the way Jesus intended us to hear this sermon was with a broad lens so that we can see the whole portrait of what he is painting for us. And what he's painting is how people respond to him. Does it matter how we respond to love? So as we unpack this, here's what we see. The first thing that Jesus gives us in this portrait It's two roads. Two roads that are showing us how people have chosen to respond to him. And the first road that he lines out for us is large. It's broad. It's wide. Its gate is just as big. It's open. It's welcoming. Many people are on this road. This is where the majority of the world has responded to Jesus. They see Jesus and their response to him is to reject him. These are people who reject Jesus by saying, you know what, that whole religious thing, the whole spirituality thing, I want nothing to do with this. I I only want things I can put my hands on. I only want things that science can prove. I want nothing to do with that. And you've got the agnostic, the atheists, the skeptics. That's their response to Jesus. You've got people who respond to Jesus by saying, yes, he's a great teacher. He's a good moral teacher. He's a good ethical teacher just like all the other moral and ethical teachers, but he's nothing other than just that. That's a number of religions. Islam says that. Hinduism says that. You've got people who respond to Jesus by saying, yes, he's a God. Yes, he's something great, but he is not the God. You've got a number of people whose worldviews are that way. And their response to Jesus is to reject him. This is the majority of the world. And man, we could have a whole year's worth of sermons about how we are called to fulfill the Great Commission. 
to go and to love these people, to go and to serve these people, to bring the gospel to them. But in this particular sermon, Jesus doesn't stay here on this road. He takes his attention over here to a second road. This road's on the same portrait that he painted for us. But this road's very different. It's small. It's a narrow road. The gate is also very small. And, and he says that very few people choose this road. Very few people are on this road. But this is the road that many of us have chosen. These are people who have responded to Jesus by saying, I want that. I want that. These are Christians. These are church people. And this is where Jesus spends the majority of his time is on this road. But it's also on this road where things get really, really uncomfortable. Because as Jesus starts to zoom in and focus on this road, he says that here you find wolves in sheep's clothing. These are Christians. These are church people. These are people that make it into the building every Sunday. They sit down. They worship. They tithe. They're in Sunday school classes. These are Christian people. But Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. Their fruit is division. Their fruit is to be power hungry. Their fruit is to knock anyone out of their way if they try to stop them from getting what they want. We, we know and have seen people like this. They're often the people who hurt maybe young Christians because they don't look the way they should. They don't talk the way they should. We all know someone who's been turned off by the church. Man, I don't want anything to do with religion because I was hurt so badly. There are wolves in the church. There are people who are only after what they can get. There are people who their response to Jesus is, I can use you and I can use others to get what I want, to get power. We see evangelists on television becoming millionaires off of manipulation. They're pastors. Sometimes they're youth ministers. Sometimes they're counselors. Sometimes they're Sunday school teachers. There are wolves in sheep's clothing in churches all around the world. And we each need to be in a place where we say, Lord, rid me of any wolf tendencies where I'm after just what I want. Where I want church to be the way I want it to be. Where I want everything around me to be mine and I want to control it and I will knock anyone out of my way to get what I want. We all have tendencies like that. I have tendencies like that. And we need to be people of repentance. And then on this road, Jesus begins to focus even more. And as we look at this same portrait, we see that Jesus says that on the day of judgment, when people stand before him, there will be Christians that look up at Jesus and they say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus responds to them, I don't even know who you are. Does that not make you sick to your stomach? Does that not, scared is a word that comes to mind. Because these people, they, they have deceived themselves. They look at Jesus and with happiness they say lord 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 we know you and he says but i don't know who you are these are christian people who man in worship they have their hands raised they are tithing they're going on mission trips they are serving in every way that they can but they are utterly lost even though they look like christians in every way 
but one. You see, as humans, we have pretty much three needs. You could come up with more, but these are kind of the basic needs. We have a mental need, we have an emotional need, and we have a communal need. Now, we're all different people. We're wired in different ways. And so for some of us, we'd say, okay, well, this need is greater than this need. And, but we essentially all have those needs. And so the mental needs, some of us are very intellectual people. What we desire are deep conversations to talk about theology, to talk about philosophy, to talk about history, to talk about things that really just get your head spinning. And you go to school, you go to higher education, you read books, you're on blog forums. You just love those deep, deep conversations. You want to be intellectually stimulated. And man, you can find that in church. And God intended it to be that way. I mean, God is so mysterious. God is so deep that when you really look at him for who he is, you will be able to have deep, stimulating conversations. God has always intended him, his house, his people to desire that. And you can find it in church. Maybe your bend is more this way, towards an emotional draw. This tends to be America. We want something that we can be emotionally tied to, emotionally invested in. Look at sports. I mean, people who are fans of sports, they are some of the most emotionally invested people in the world, aren't they? I mean, you can go to uh, Fog Allen. Many of you guys have been and seen Jayhawk games. They've got one of the best arenas, one of the best home crowds in the nation for college basketball. And I hear that they are loud and they are enthusiastic. You go to Arrowhead Stadium, watch the Chiefs. They broke world records for how loud the fans are. Chiefs fans are known as some of the most enthusiastic, emotionally invested fans in the entire NFL. And then you can go to Kauffman Stadium. Not Kauffman Stadium. That'll be empty for the most part. But but Royals fans, they're still invested. They're still invested. You see, when we emotionally invest in something, it, it returns worth to us. We feel as though it's important. We want to be emotionally invested. And you can hive that in church. During a worship service, you can praise God with your hands raised, and you can be emotionally connected in that moment. A a pastor can be preaching passionately, and and the heartstrings that you have so deep within you are just coming alive. Maybe it's Bible stories that take you back to when you were a kid, and oh man, you're just so emotionally connected to that. And God has always intended to be church, where it's something that we can respond to with our whole self, with our emotions. Maybe it's about the community. You've always desired to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You've always wanted to be in a place where you can be surrounded by like-minded people, where you can strive for the same things. You can find that in church. And man, if church is anything, it's a community of people. It's a community of people who do life together. And God always intended it to be that way. God always intended us to have our needs met here and there. But it gets really messy. Because in a church service, you have two people. Both of them are intellectually stimulated by everything that's going on, by the sermon, by the theology. Those two people are emotionally drawn to the service, to the music, to the lights, to the scripture, to the poetry. Those same people are happily involved in the community there in the church. They're satisfied in every way. Yet, one of them is lost. The other is saved. And what's the difference? It's a very small, small difference. 
but it makes an eternity of difference. And it's this. Some people come to God to get everything they want from Him. Some people come to God to get everything they want from Him. Other people come to God to get everything they need in Him. It sounds so similar, yet they're so different. And it can be explained kind of in this, with, with cat and dog theology. Maybe you've heard of that. Cat and dog theology. It's where you have a dog. You've got dog lovers in the house? I won't let my wife have a dog. She wants one really bad. I won't let her have one. You've got a dog who looks at its master. Just, just picture a beautiful golden retriever. And you get home from work and it runs up to you. And what is that dog thinking? It's thinking, oh, you love me. You take care of me. You provide for my every need. You must be God. And you are the most important thing in the entire universe. It's dog theology. What's cat theology? We do have a cat, so I'm familiar with them. That cat looks at you. You come home and it's like, great. Oh, I know you love me. I know you provide for me. I know you take care of me. Which means I must be God. <laughs> and I must be the most important thing in the universe. Very similar, yet very different. You see, in Scripture, people responded to Jesus. People followed Jesus. People were enthusiastically sold out to what he was doing. And they went everywhere that he went. But Scripture tells us that many of them followed him because he multiplied bread and fish and he fed them and filled their stomach. And eventually they left him. They wanted what they could get from Jesus. We see that other people, they followed Jesus and they would bring all their friends. You've got to come and see this. The stuff that he's doing is incredible. These miracles, and they were entertained by what he did. And both of these groups of people, they were the same people who years later were standing in a temple court saying, crucify, crucify, crucify. Because they followed Jesus to get what they could from him. But then there were people who went to find everything in him. And we see that these people followed him everywhere that he went. They followed him to the very end. And at one point, Jesus asked one of his disciples, Peter, he says, are you going to leave me like everybody else? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. You are the Messiah. You are the Savior. It's you that we want. Why do you respond to Jesus? Do you respond to Jesus so that he can get you a perfect family? So that you can raise your kids to be productive Americans? Do you respond to Jesus? Do you follow Jesus so that he can make your marriage better? So that he can fix your spouse? Do you come to Jesus so he can help you get your finances in order so you can get out of debt? Do you come to Jesus so that he can fill the void in your life because you don't have someone to love and you want him to provide someone for you? Do you come to Jesus for entertainment? Do you come to Jesus for emotional draw just so that you can get something from him? Or do you come to Jesus because you want him? Does it matter? 
how we respond to Jesus. Yes, it does. But I know what you're thinking because I'm thinking the same thing. It's not wrong to desire those things. It can't be wrong that I want to have a better marriage. It can't be wrong that I want to raise my kids right, that they become good children. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong that I want to get out of debt. No, there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. I want all of that. We should all want all of that. And we can get that from Jesus. But here's the difference. What do we think of a woman who is married to a man? This man is wealthy. And we realize that she does not love him at all. She's only in it for what she can get from him. In fact, she's waiting for him to die. She has no love in her heart for him at all. We look at that and we say, that is horrible. How dare she? Or what do we think when we look at a scenario with a young man who is dating a young woman and he doesn't love her, he doesn't care for her, and everything he's striving to do is to use her to meet his physical needs. He doesn't care for her at all. We look at that and we say, that's abuse. We would intervene in that situation. We would do everything we could to cause that from happening because that is the epitome of selfishness. How dare they do that? And we are so prone to do that to God. I have and do do that to God. We need to be repentant for that. We need to be repentant. So what does Jesus tell us happens to a person who the foundation of their belief is based on and founded on getting things from God? What happens to a person when their entire foundation is based on their own righteousness, their own ability to perform, their own ability to avoid sin and do good things? When their foundation is based on that, Jesus tells us that the winds of life will come. The waters will rise. Storms will beat against you and your life and that person who their faith and their entire existence is founded upon themselves. They will fall with a crash. Oh man, which makes me think of a question. Does it matter how we respond to Jesus? The answer is an emphatic yes, it matters. It matters that we respond to him for who he is. That we see him for who he is. That we see the message of the gospel clearly. And we respond to it with humility saying, I want Jesus. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. The problem is the gospel message is so often diluted. The gospel message is so often misunderstood. The gospel message is preached in a number of different places. And you'll hear it in so many different ways. It'll make your head spin. And sometimes... We don't even understand what the gospel message is. And so I like simple things. And I like things to kind of be compressed. And so we can sum up the gospel message in this way. If you want to throw it on the screen. We are saved by grace, through faith, under good works. Now what this sentence lacks in grammatical structure, <laughs> it makes up for in truth. We are saved by grace, through faith, unto good works. This is the gospel message. And we get it from this passage of scripture. If you guys want to see it, it'll be up on the screen. It's from Ephesians chapter 3. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance 
for us to do. Now to break this down, and I'm a visual person, so this helps me. So maybe this will help you. You see, we are saved. We are saved by God. Now saved, being saved is a funny thing. Because it first tells us that we need saving. And that's something that some people just right from the get-go disagree with. I don't need to be saved because I don't have sin in my life. The things I'm doing aren't wrong. How dare you tell me my lifestyle, my choices are wrong. So, so many people right off the bat when they say, a savior, I don't need a savior. And they reject it right from the get-go. Their response to Jesus is, I don't want that. I don't need saved. There's nothing wrong with me. But for the majority of us as Christians, we understand, yes, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Romans tells us that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That's it. All is pretty encompassing, if I remember right. All have sinned. So as Christians, we understand we need saving. But for us, it gets messy when we tend to struggle to understand the means for which we are saved. Scripture tells us we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. By grace alone, we're saved. Now, we are uh, Midwestern Americans. So we work hard. We earn everything we have. We don't like a handout. Not at all. And so the idea that this is a free gift, the idea that this is given to us no matter what we do, we can't earn it, we can't be good enough to receive it, that is so hard for us to accept. Some of this don't even want to accept that because it means that we're powerless. But here's the truth. We are saved because we need saving. By grace, because we can't save ourselves. So it's given to us freely. But it's so hard for us to understand. And so most of us live with this paradigm. I love and serve God so that I'm saved. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, I'm saved. So I respond by loving and serving God. And scripture tells us that our response to that, our response to the saving grace of Jesus, is to put our faith and our hope in Him. To respond in faith. To respond in faith. In John chapter 6, we see a crowd of people that are following Jesus, and they ask a very typical question. I can see myself asking this. What does the Father want us to do, Jesus? What's, what's the Father want us to do? Just, just tell us. We'll do it. I mean, give us a three-step process. We'll have it done by tonight. What does he want us to do, Jesus? Come on, tell us. Tell us. And Jesus responds with, the work of the Father is this, to believe in the one he has sent. To believe, to have faith, just to have faith, to have faith in what? That we've been saved by grace. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We can't be good enough. We can't avoid sin enough. We can't love enough people. We can't read our Bible enough. We can't pray enough. It's a gift. It's given to us. And our response is to have faith and hope in that and belief in that. To believe that we are saved. 
that we are given grace continually over and over and over again, that it is lavished upon us when we fail, when we fall short, when we don't feel like going to church, when we don't feel like praying, when we don't feel like studying Scripture. Grace is lavished upon us. And we hope in that. And when we totally understand this and our faith is placed soundly in Christ and what he has done and that it is done, the natural overflow of our life will be good works. This is the proper and biblical position for good works. On top of the foundation that we are saved by Jesus We are given the free gift of grace. We respond to Him in faith. And then we live a life of good works. Are you guys seeing the the color things here? Red is what God has done. Blue is how we respond. Purple is how we work through His saving grace. But here's most of our paradigms. There's the foundation of my relationship with Jesus. Man, I've got to be good enough for him to love me. I've got to do enough. I've got to avoid enough sin. I've got to be happy enough. I've got to be joy-filled enough. And man, it's just so hard, but I've got to start working better. I've got to start being better. I've got to start doing more things, staying away from those other things. And I'm thankful that there's grace that can come down in those moments. There's grace that rests on us in those moments. Because my natural paradigm is to work hard so that I'm saved. My natural paradigm is to work hard so that Jesus loves me. And I'm so thankful that there's grace that comes down. That Jesus teaches us in this moment. That it's not us, but that it's him. But if your foundation stays, if your foundation has always been, I have to work to get salvation. I have to work to get love. Then I'm sorry to say, but salvation does not stand on that. And your faith may be solid for a while while you're performing well, while you're doing everything that you should, while you're avoiding sin, but eventually you'll realize you're not strong enough and you'll see that your faith does not rest on that foundation. The foundation of the gospel is that we are saved by grace through faith. Unto good works. This is how we respond to the gospel. This is the response. Whoa, that's not good. I feared that would happen. I saw some faces smiling. I assume that. So you might be thinking, man, how, how do I, how do I process this this sermon? What what do I take away from this sermon? I believe there are two types of sermons. There are more, but let's pretend like there's just two. There are sermons where the truth of God comes at you and it tells you what you need to know. And there are sermons where the truth of God comes at you and tells you what you need to do. But I think it works kind of like this, that the truth of God penetrates our hearts. And when we respond to him in humility, we realize what we must do. We realize that we have to do something. We realize that we have to do something. And so this is what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to, at some point, very soon, try to get away from the cell phone, get away from the television, get away from your kids if you can. It's hard. They're crazy. 
and have a moment where you pursue the heart of God. And you say, God, what is my foundation? How have I responded to you? Have I responded to you so that I can get stuff from you? So that I can get everything I want from you? Because God, I don't want that. I want all my needs met in you. I want you, Jesus. We need to search our hearts to see what our foundation is. We need to pray earnestly, God, where am I coming from with this? Only you can show me. Because what scares me is that passage of Scripture talks about that the people who stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, he responds to them with, I never knew you, and they're shocked. They don't know it. And they immediately start saying, but look at all that I did. I prophesied in your name. I preached in your name. We performed miracles in your name. We did all these things in your name, Jesus. Look at what we did. We deserve it. We all need to go before God and say, God, am I trying to earn your salvation? Am I trying to be good enough so that you'll let me in? And we need to humbly ask that question before God. And God will show us what we need to know. And then what we respond to and how we live our lives according to this gospel message, this foundation that we are saved by grace through faith, then to to do good works is this. That when you have those moments, it could be tomorrow for that matter, where you go to work and your boss, oh my goodness, that, that boss, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you're the boss and it's your employees. But those people that just, man, they get on your last nerve, they rub you the wrong way, you just can't stand being in their presence any longer and you're already devising a scheme of how to ridicule them, how to mock them, how to put them down, how to put them in their place, just get back at them. But you know that a Christian wouldn't do that. Well, your natural response with this understanding of the gospel is not to respond in kindness so, man, I gotta, I gotta be nice to him or else I don't get into heaven. I mean, I gotta be nice to him or else Jesus will stop loving me. No, that's not your response. Your response is, I've been saved by God because he loves me. He has lavished grace upon me and I don't deserve it. And I need to have faith that he has given me that. And then from the overflow of my heart, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna love my boss because I've been given so much. When your spouse is just being your spouse and you're just so frustrated with them and you want to just come against them with anger, with frustration and you're fighting with, how is it that I should respond? I really want to just put them down. I really want to fight them but I, I won't be a good Christian if I do that and I want to get into heaven. That's not your response. Your response is to look to the gospel and say, I've been saved by grace. Grace has been given to me, lavished upon me. Man, I'm filled with love now because I realize how much I am loved. And your natural response, your overflow of good works will be to love your spouse, to have humility towards them. When you're tempted to type in that web address, to go to that internet site, to look at those images, and you're thinking, I can't get into heaven if I do this, or I'll get kicked out of heaven if I do this. No, that's not the proper response. The proper response is to fight it. But what do we fight it with? With our own strength? With our own ability to say, no, don't be a bad Christian. Absolutely not. The proper response is to say, you know, I'm saved by Christ. He has given me grace. Even when I fail, I don't have to choose the things of the world. I don't have to choose lust. I can choose Jesus. And your response is because of this when you don't feel like studying scripture, when you don't feel like being in prayer, you tell yourself, man, if I'm going to go to heaven, I've got to do these things. I've got to read more. I've got to read Leviticus. Oh, 
Prayer is hard. Sometimes it feels like you're talking to no one. Prayer is hard for me. Our response is not, well, I've got to get through it if I'm going to get to heaven. No, our response is, the Lord of the universe that created me, that is all-powerful, that is all-knowing, that is in all places at all times, that lavishes grace upon me and that saved me. I can know him. I can know him through a book that he gave us that reveals himself. Oh, my goodness, my response to that is that I want to know him. Does it matter how we respond to Jesus? The answer is emphatically yes. Our response to him should not be to get what we can from him. Our response to him should not be that I work harder so that he loves me. Our response to Jesus should not be anything other than he is Lord. And in the gospel message, we see that he saves us through grace. And we respond by faith. And then we live a life of good works. That's the gospel that Christ has brought us. That's the gospel message that week in and week out Kevin is bringing us. And the heart of our church is that we respond to Christ in that way with humility. And that our foundation is the truth. And then with that foundation intact and solid, we respond to him with love. See, Rachel, when I asked her to marry me, she said yes. (laughs) Woo! Jesus stands at the door and he knocks. He says, look what I've done for you in spite of you. And I will continue to do it in spite of you. In spite of your sin, in spite of your failing, in spite of your occasional lack of desire, I will continue to do my work in you. Respond to it. As the band comes back up, I want you to think about that, that idea. Because there are people in this room who have never responded to Jesus. There are people in this room who they've responded to Jesus, but, man, you've, maybe you've fallen out of love with him. There are people in this room who they've responded to Jesus, but, but as we talked about, and this is what breaks my heart, that there are Christians That on the day they stand before Jesus, they will be so glad to see him, but he will say, I don't know who you are. Be a follower of Christ. That foundationally responds to who he is by saying, Lord, I want you. I want you for who you truly are. And respond with faith that says, I see that what you've done and I see what you're giving me. And our response to faith looks oh so pure that we say God what do you want from me you ask me to go to the waters of baptism you ask me to join a community of believers you ask me to to be here and to worship you amongst Christians will you respond to Jesus